For Talking Additive Episode 6, I met with Captain Brad Baker, Permanent Military Professor and Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the United States Naval Academy. My name is Captain Brad Baker. I'm an active duty naval officer and also Associate Professor at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Captain Baker served for 16 years in the submarine force, but considers his most rewarding duty to be his latest role, training future military leaders at the United States Naval Academy, USNA. There, he directs the Makerspace USNA and teaches several popular courses in the mechanical engineering department, introducing additive manufacturing technology to Naval Academy officers and training students, referred to as midshipmen. The United States Naval Academy is often just called Navy. It is similar to what most people know as West Point, which is actually the United States Military Academy, or United States Air Force Academy, which is in Colorado Springs. There's also a U.S. Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut. USNA is both an educational and governmental institution that enjoys productive collaborations with outside agencies that support USNA's education of future Naval and Marine Corps officers and leaders, while also accomplishing modern and relevant scientific research for the AM community. Uh, The Naval Academy has about 4,000 students. That's a good, nice round number. It's an undergraduate institution only, and it is only a four-year program. So it's pretty lockstep. You come there for four years, graduate, uh, and then become a Naval officer. Officer. You could also become a Marine Corps officer and even in some other situations, maybe commission a different service. The Makerspace USNA is a 3D printing laboratory space maintained by the Center for Material Characterization within the Mechanical Engineering Department, providing 3D printing capability for classroom and laboratory instruction as well as project support for students, faculty, and staff at USNA. I did graduate from Naval Academy back in 1994, so it has been a goal of mine for a long time to come back here and teach. So this is something that I wanted to do for a very long time. I have a lot of pride in Naval Academy. I think it is an outstanding institution, and I think we make great naval officers and great future leaders. So that's a quick nutshell. Most of our students are engineering majors, but they can choose any major that they want, including humanities, English, history, then the sciences, chemistry, physics, etc. And then we have the, pretty much a full spectrum of engineering majors. One of the interesting things, and I think the Naval Academy, perhaps the other service campus too, are relatively unique on this. Every graduate from Naval Academy gets a bachelor's of science. There is no bachelor of arts, including like English. If you graduate majoring in English from Naval Academy, you have a bachelor's of science in English. That's kind of unusual. And everybody, regardless of major, takes three semesters of calculus, uh, some other engineering disciplines like thermodynamics. So I'm talking history major taking thermodynamics. That does not happen in very many schools. Uh, The reason for that is all naval officers need a, a strong baseline engineering. I'm Matt Griffin, and this is Talking Additive, a 3D printing podcast made possible by Ultimaker. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business innovators and allies to discuss the impact of adopting additive manufacturing. How does adopting additive manufacturing benefit a business today and what will be possible in the future? Welcome to our sixth episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy to use solution of 3D printers, software, and materials that enable professional designers and engineers to innovate every day. Its global team of over 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to digital distribution and local manufacturing.
While the Makerspace USNA is for all intents and purposes closed for access due to COVID-19, that doesn't mean that Captain Baker and another staff member haven't kept the facility in operation, engaging both in COVID PPE production and tuning and rebuilding the lab to address current and upcoming instructional needs in the light of virtual and hybrid classrooms. I was thrilled to connect to Captain Baker virtually before the kickoff of his June course load, chatting at length with him about his latest facility updates as he continues to integrate new additive manufacturing equipment in preparation for what will be a busy summer and fall, despite the doors of his facility being at the moment closed to students. In this episode, Captain Baker talks with me about the use of 3D printing at USNA and the Makerspace USNA, as well as how FFF technology prepares students for future careers in the military and engineering roles, where additive manufacturing technology is quickly becoming widespread. So most people refer to me as Captain Baker, so Captain Brad Baker. Most people think of me as a naval officer first, but I am a professor. So I do have a PhD. You know, no one ever calls me doctor. Not many people call me professor. But what I tell my students is I think of myself as an instructor first, a naval officer second, and then a submarine officer third. Quite honestly, I'm comfortable with any of those things. I originally enlisted in the Navy all the way back in 1988, and I was on my way to serve in submarines without a degree. And then I applied and got accepted to the Naval Academy. So uh, I, have, I have experience on both sides of the fence there. Coming to the Naval Academy, every graduate from the Naval Academy must serve in the armed forces. Now, the, the vast majority, I mean, almost all are in the Navy, but you, there can be others. Marine Corps is really uh, a part of the Department of the Navy, so I consider them to be a subset of that. For their service in the Navy, they can do several different things. I was a submarine officer. That's a relatively common one. Many are surface warfare officers who drive ships, and then plenty are also aviators. Those are the three most common, aviation, surface, and subsurface service, and then Marine Corps. There are a couple other specialties, even SEALs, EOD, and a couple of other ones. But all graduates are committed to service in one of those areas. My background for my PhD work was in manufacturing. It was specifically in a process called frictionister welding. So that was really before added manufacturing was really as popular or as prevalent as it is today. And then when I transitioned and became a professor at the United States Naval Academy, I really just had an interest in manufacturing. Uh, and I had an, obviously an interest in education. And so it seemed very clear to me that bringing in added manufacturing or 3D printing to the Naval Academy was a pretty good idea from an educational perspective and then also just simply from a manufacturing perspective. So it really was about personal interest that got me started and then an interest in educating future naval officers in the technology. What was that first exposure? There were several instructors that had small amounts of 3D printing, like maybe this professor had a small 3D printer that they were tinkering with or a student had done a small project, but it was not very well integrated and everyone was doing their own separate thing. So I had interest in it and I wanted to pool everybody together. So I manage all of our materials labs at the United States Naval Academy in the mechanical engineering department. So using some funds that I control, just bought a couple FFF printers and they were entry level just to get us started to see what they're like. Would people use them? Would they not use them? So I really just wanted to dip our toe into it, get the technology to where it wasn't just for one person. It could be made available for several people, including students and faculty. So that's how we got started. And that was about five years ago. And quite honestly, my vision early back then was I thought, well, we'll just want one uh, 
type of manufacturing, one type of 3D printing, maybe one vendor. My view on that has changed considerably since then. What you learn very quickly is that there's not one printer or one technology that can do everything. So we have a much broader array of printing now than we did back then in those early days. What I expected to happen, our students do, like many universities, they do a year-long capstone project in their engineering education. And most of these capstone projects are what I say making widgets, right? They're designed to build something. A lot of times it's a, a project for a specific faculty research program, or maybe it's something as simple as helping a disabled person with uh, mobility or something like that. What I really envisioned was uh, that these students would use these printers in this capability for in many cases to prototype. Could they build a prototype of what they made in CAD to build a project? And the best way to highlight that is very early on, one of my first experiences, I was on a capstone team. I was their technical lead. And uh, this will sound crazy, but they were making a submarine launched UAV. I know that sounds bizarre, but it's a real thing. Uh, and obviously I, I had a little bit of background on that since I have a background in submarine service. And uh, it was a great team. They were really good students. They did a really good job. They ended up actually winning an award for their work. But during the ent entire course of their year, they were only able to produce, I think, like three designs to actually build. And the reason for that was back in those early days before my lab took off, they had to submit their jobs to our shop. And our shop, great technicians, they would use their 3D printing capability to manufacture them. I love the project, but I was really, it's like, man, this is the opposite of rapid prototyping. This is like slow prototyping. So I really wanted to bring the technology down to the students. Uh, and then in subsequent years with similar projects, they go through three productions in a month. They might go through literally 10, maybe 20 you know, iterations in a year. So that's what I really wanted. I wanted to enable our student capstone projects. Did you see that iteration start to happen from the second you got them or does that take a little bit? Almost immediately. But first off, the technologies are pretty easy for students to adopt, especially engineering students. The vast majority of the students that work in my lab are engineering students. They all know CAD and CAM. We're a SOLIDWORKS school, but that doesn't really matter. You could use any software package. They get trained. They, they get trained on how to use these CAD programs. So now it's a relatively easy transition for them to try to idly manufacture the part. They just need to be instructed on it. Uh, I hate push button solutions. Uh, I know everyone wants in their CAD program a button that says 3D print. I do not like that because it's a whole different part of the process. So I want students to learn how to take their designs and make it into an actual part. I, mean, I have interest in 3D printing education, but my active research is also on 3D printing including metals and polymers. So I really am interested in both sides of it. It's, it. We do a lot of just simple 3D printing, but then you know, we do a lot of research on some of the more advanced alloys like TIE 6.4 and biocompatibility and grain size effects after different adding manufacturing techniques. I have interest at both levels. So our core areas are polymer and metal atom manufacturing, multi-material atom manufacturing, material characterization, cybersecurity, and topology optimizations. And quite honestly, those are probably going to stay our five core areas for, for quite a while. So when you were focused on exploring manufacturing, what did you think about the various iteration tools and fabrication tools you had at that time? And how did that prepare you or not prepare you for additive manufacturing? Sure. Well, it's a good question. My biggest problem that I had with our manufacturing capability is it wasn't at a student level. The resources were, were there, uh, and we have good technicians, good machinists who know how to manufacture things. 
so they can show students how to do it. But very rarely do students actually get to do it. Our students do a lot of design work, a lot of design work. They do and they do a lot of testing work, right? So they take something that's been made and they actually test it. But the missing link is the in-between, the taking your design, making it into a functional part, and then evaluating it. So that was really the niche that I was, I was trying to fill. We had some of the capability, but it really wasn't at a, at a level where students could directly use it. And additive manufacturing, especially the modern 3D printing, does that very well. I do teach more than 3D printing or additive manufacturing. I do teach pretty much all well within mechanical engineering, definitely, but then also materials. So I teach our sophomore level class in material science, where you talk about stress and strain and all these simple engineering principles. But then I do offer an additive manufacturing elective class that is increased every year we've ever done it. And our last year was a high water market, over 80 students. It was the largest elective in the department, it covered several different majors. And that is very specifically on additive manufacturing. I also do a lot of research work with my students. Uh, and every research project I've done over the last like three years has had some kind of additive manufacturing component to it. A lot of times a we might uh, get a part either from the Navy or from another university or somewhere somebody else made and we characterize it because that's the other area that we really specialize in is characterization of 3D printed materials. Now we are starting to get into more, would you say, novel manufacturing techniques. One of our current projects is on doping you know, different consumables. So there's some fundamental 3D printing education education, but then there's some also pretty advanced and novel techniques that apply to the Navy, uh, to other you know industries and the like. So then what is the role of additive manufacturing, both in their education and beyond, especially with such a uh, STEM-driven student body? Sure. Well, like many industries, the Navy is just a large, big industry, and they clearly have interest in additive manufacturing. There is interest in the supply chain advantages of employing additive manufacturing, as well as a host of other things. So the Navy has interest in educating their naval officers in additive manufacturing. So I've tried to stay in, in concert with that with the other groups in the Navy. So I work with NAVC. I know which way they're going. We actually have a sailor right now assigned to Naval Academy who's from the first additive manufacturing lab that's on a carrier that's ever been to sea. So we are trying very hard to prepare our naval officers to fill in those roles once they get out into the Navy. So we try to stay in concert with what they're doing. And then we also just try to give them, our graduates, a background in 3D printing. The way that I like to look at it, the graduates from the Naval Academy within their first couple years are going to be in leadership positions, many of which require technical capability. And they're going to be the ones that are making decisions. Well, can I use 3D printing in this application? Is this produced part actually good enough for use in this situation? Should I 3D print this one or should I conventionally manufacture it? To do that, they need an education in, in additive manufacturing. They need to understand the processes. They need to understand the limitations, understand the benefits so they can make good decisions. So that really, that's one of my end goals is to prepare future naval officers to be able to employ additive manufacturing in their future jobs. So when do they encounter 3D printers in their training there? So that's another great question. So first off, almost all of our students, this is their 
first exposure. That is slowly starting to change. And I do think over the next couple of years, all the implementation that's being done at other educational levels, whether or not it's high school or middle school or just personal, most of my students, I would say probably 75% to maybe 80, 85% have never done any 3D printing before. So this is their first exposure. Now there are 3D printers and ag manufacturing technologies that are out in what we call the fleet. So when they graduate from the academy and if they've had experience at the academy, it's very likely that they're going to come across it in their service in the Navy or Marine Corps. And what kind of role? It's pretty exciting, this story of the additive manufacturing workshop on a carrier. I know that it's pretty common in training camps and for focus on readiness and teaching. Are there other places that it shows up? Uh, there certainly are, and they're ones that would hopefully make sense to most people if you think about them. And actually, the Marine Corps is one of the leaders in it because it works very well in their kind of expeditionary role. So we work with the Marine Corps as well as the Navy, and the Marine Corps has very active projects where they're trying to push even we're talking about relatively simple atom manufacturing technologies out to their units so they can make simple parts. Not every part needs to be a level component or subject to extreme loading conditions. A lot of times you just need simple things. So the Marine Corps is definitely, I think, on one of the leading edges of actually putting this technology out there in the field for the Marines to use. The Navy is as well, too. And that's why you see it on especially larger ships like a carrier. But even submarines now are starting to have some degree of 3D printing on them. How they utilize those parts might be a lot different, but the capability will exist in many places out in the fleet. Compare the uses at the Naval Academy from how it's used during their service days. So I can give you a couple of good examples. So one of my favorite uh, projects, I'm not part of this team per se, although I have been now more over the last couple of years, is we have an FSA team, a Formula One race car team every year. It's one of the most popular capstone projects because, I mean, who doesn't want to build a race car their senior year and then go and race it? There's always a, a large team, about 20 students every year, and they always go and race, and it's generally very, very successful. So I've been pushing hard over the last couple of years for them to consider using Addy manufacturing within some design of the race car, and they've done that. Initially, it was for, we'll say, cosmetic items like maybe wings or small components. But this year, this is a big year for us, even with COVID, we actually did 3D print a part that is in the powertrain. Now it's on the intake side, so that's not exactly high temperature, but uh, we have a really cool video of it that we could link if you wanted to. They actually made the intake cylinders 3D printed and they're actually clear and you can actually see the firing. This is another like holy grail of of engine and car manufacturers is, is to have a, a C3 engine where you can actually see uh, the combustion process. So I, I think Adam Manufacturing and the race car team is here to stay. I think every year they'll make continued progress. By producing that part in a different way, you get a whole other set of values in addition to it serving its mechanical role. That's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, and there's one part that I want to add on to that, and it really is a, a difference that we've tried to make over the last couple of years. It's very clear that 3D printing is very good for prototyping, right? Can you make this part? Does it fit? Does the form work? And then you go and traditionally manufacture the part for mass production. Admittedly, that was one of our early on ways that we were going to incorporate 3D printing. But I think it's very clear now that many of these parts can be made and actually be a useful part in and of themselves with some post-processing or some additional treatment. We can actually make functional parts, you know, not just prototype parts. If you were to list out the kinds of roles that these parts are playing, you have 
prototyping as extension of CAD training as well. And you have some functional parts for these capstone projects. Are you using it also for like process aids and, and producing other types of fabricating things where you use 3D printing as a manufacturing aid, like jigs and fixtures and hold downs? Yes, absolutely. Again, back to the race car team, one of the ways they've done it is for exactly they've made fixtures or things to then help other processes. The race car team has always had uh, a couple different projects that are added manufactured centered on it. And some of those have been those kind of assisted ones. But another way to answer your question, we do have some pretty advanced ways to using Addy Manufacturing. And I'll touch on this a little bit as much as we, we can because we have a, a patent pending on it. But we've used 3D printing to actually make a radiation detector. And I know that sounds completely off the wall and bizarre. But the other area that I haven't mentioned yet that I do a lot with is actually nuclear engineering. My background is actually really in nuclear engineering. So we've used a modified adding manufacturing technique to actually make a radiation sensor. The part itself is the detector. The cable is inherent with the part. It's not like it's then it needs to be coded or put into some kind of device. So we vision it as really being incorporated into other things. It can be incorporated into your PPE, into your helmet or whatever, where it's serving a structural role, but it's also serving this other kind of dual-hatted role. It's a pretty advanced concept, we believe. We think it's pretty novel, and we've tested it, and we've proven that, that it works. Now we just need to see how we want to implement it. Did this come out of your ongoing research? How does a project like that, that uses this technology, enter your list of activities? Yeah, so that's another good question, and I'm not, I won't try to be boastful, but this was purely 100% my idea. I'll certainly give my co-inventor some credit on this, but let me build the backstory. Uh, when I graduated from the Naval Academy in 1994, I did a research project again. It was actually the Defense Nuclear Agency back then, not DITRA, but same organization. And I was working on a radiation detector for similar purposes. It wasn't 3D printed and it was a pretty simple detector. Flash forward 25 years back at the Naval Academy with a much broader education. And I saw this added manufacturing capability. And I was like, wow, this actually might be able to tie with what I did all the way back 25 years ago. So I grouped up with two inventors of mine, one who's an expert in radio detectors better than I am, and another who's a, an expert in polymers. And we, the three of us put it together and we proposed it as a project idea to a student team. And we gave them a list of uh, options. The project was entitled Multifunctional 3D Printing. And we said, hey, one of your multifunctions could be radiation detection. And quite honestly, we wanted to steer them this way, but we let them run with it. And so the idea really did start with us. And then our students did a lot of the work in actually proving that it was that it was possible. Was that a capstone or just a, another type of student project? It was. It was. It was a capstone team. We've now had our second year of a capstone team do it successfully, and it'll definitely go on for next year as well, too. There are branches of this. So I've had a branch that's always had a student doing some specific aspect. Maybe it's the chemistry that's involved in these polymers or whatever. So it's it's both a team effort and then some aspects also individual. And now it's quite broad. Uh, we've generally started with mechanical engineers on the team. This year, we had a lot of nuclear engineers since we were very much into the nuclear aspect. We envision very soon actually even having like electrical engineering majors on the team because now we're going to be talking into how do you actually, you know, handle this signal that's generated in there. So this is a true interdisciplinary project. That's fantastic. How would you do these capstones in the absence of this kind of technology? How can we paint the portrait of, of what having that technology has enabled there? Yeah, so I think the way that I would answer that is we crunched some numbers this year. You know, nominally, 
there's a thousand uh, students in any given year at the Naval Academy. Roughly two thirds of those are engineering majors. All engineering majors must pick a capstone project. So that's somewhere in the 600 to 650 kind of range, roughly. So there's a lot of capstone projects. Uh, they work in teams, so it, it gets scaled down by about another factor of, of five. So there's easily 100 or so capstone projects. When we crunch the numbers, we as the faculty put out to the students, hey, here are possible topics. Students can also come up with their own. But if you think back when you were undergraduate, you probably didn't really know enough. You needed to have a project somewhat given to you. Maybe you could iterate on it a little bit. So we present the students with uh, projects and then let them run with them. But anyway, of next year's uh, capstone projects, there are about uh, 15% that are directly on added manufacturing, like the purpose is added manufacturing. There are about 25% of them that have 3D printing or added manufacturing specifically stated in the goal, like make this part via added manufacturing. And then we're all the way up to almost 50%, somewhere in the mid 40s of that we anticipate will use added manufacturing to some degree. They'll make a prototype part or something. So we, I absolutely believe that added manufacturing enables capstone projects. And I think it's only going to grow. This is Matt Griffin, host of Talking Additive, Ultimaker's 3D printing podcast. Through interviews with top innovators, partners, and allies, this series offers a chance to learn from those who have experienced firsthand the impact of additive manufacturing. Let's keep this conversation going, just like the 3D printing labs all across the world that have remained open and fully operational during these complicated times. Enjoy our show? We'd appreciate it if you would post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. Let's take a step back and look at USNA. What has been the process of exploring additive manufacturing. It, it sounds like, in general, the field is looking at this. USNA is also tracking right along with some of the other institutions out there. What can you tell me about the kind of progress exploring additive manufacturing to bring us up to now? Sure. Like many universities, the Naval Academy is just an engineering university like many. A lot of the research is driven by faculty. So a lot of our faculty, especially you know, newer, younger faculty, come in with added manufacturing interest or they're willing to embrace it. So a lot of it does uh, depend upon the faculty base. However, what I've also learned it doesn't take much to get students really interested in this technology. I have always operated under the assumption that my purpose is to provide the capability, right? If I provide the capability, students will find ways to use it. So I, I don't get overly concerned about exactly what project needs this or, or doesn't need that form of ag manufacturing. I try to get all the capability that we can, train the students on how to use it, and let them and their creativity be the ones to find the different ways to use it. I know that's maybe a simplistic approach, but it works quite well. If you enable students uh, to research different areas, they will find out all the things that you want to know. Okay, so we talked about you bringing in the first two desktop 3D printers and, and seeing if that could start helping people speed up those iteration loops. And then immediately, it seems like it, it kind of took off. What has surprised you about the roles that 3D printing is, is playing there at USNA and in your research? Yeah, it's a good question. Originally, I, I thought it might be somewhat limited. I knew people would use it in creative ways, but I thought we would just manufacture different parts. You make a, a, a piece for the race car 
for this purpose, or you make a piece for this UAV drone for that purpose. Those are all fundamentally the same, right? You're just making a part that otherwise could have been produced by some other means. But there's a lot more different projects now that are coming up. This will sound unusual. One of our biggest customers is our electrical engineering department. And I know that sounds weird, but they have a lot of growing interest in 3D printing. And it's for new and unusual niche applications, like the ability to do conductive materials. They're getting into microfabrication. How can we make this part smaller, micro robots? Now, a lot of my effort is trying to get them the capability that they need now and in the future to enable their projects. We have a naval architecture and ocean engineering department. A lot of universities don't necessarily have. They actually are working on Arctic projects that involve 3D printing. And that's not something that you normally would think about. But now you have to think about, well, if I 3D print this material, can it withstand Arctic temperatures and a a water-air interface? But it's very, very unusual. What you find is that adding manufacturing can come into a lot of different disciplines, not just materials, not just making widgets. How about your work as an officer? Does 3D printing pop up there or is it mostly confined to your teaching and and research? When I was on a submarine about seven years ago, so it's a little bit in the past, 3D printing was never really available. Maybe you might've heard about it, but it was never really talked about use on a ship. In my fleet experience, I never actually used it, but it clearly is being used now. So what I want to do is I want to prepare the students so that when they're out there and something happens, say something breaks on your ship, your submarine or your aircraft, can you use 3D printing to replace it? Maybe you can, maybe you can't, it really depends. Or say you are on a carrier and you have this new Addy Manufacturing Laboratory, how do you use that thing? What do you do with it? It can't just be this shiny object that goes uh, non-utilized. So you need to understand how it's used. And I do think that's one of the roles that our officers fill is to bridge that gap. You must have a good technical understanding and then you must be able to make decisions you know, based on your education. So you've brought up a couple of topics in the discussion so far that are areas that additive manufacturing seems to make a, 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 dif- a difference in the uh, Navy as an industry. Readiness, like you're just talking about right now, being able to have a general purpose fabrication tool to repair something, but also problem solving, you mentioned as a core value for future officers and leaders. What are some of the other key values there are a lot like the things you just said. Everybody has this holy grail image that you're going to be out on deployment and something's going to break and you're going to 3D print that replacement part. Is, is that achievable? Maybe. It depends upon you know the situation. I can tell you that, that it can occur and it has occurred to some degree. And that's why you need to know when you should or should not do it. So clearly on the logistical side, there is a potential huge impact of 3D printing. The ability to provide replacement parts or additional parts on you know short notice or even inherently on the ship or on the submarine. So that's probably the biggest potential use of it. Let's start with the classroom. Let's start with the students coming through USNA. What are you hoping that they will be able to draw from additive manufacturing in, in the coming five, 10 years? Well, I really want them to bring their creativity and find additional uses. So one of the things that we did, everyone had struggles with the COVID situation and we ended up doing my 3D printing class uh, virtually, which is just something that we had to deal with. So an assignment that I gave my students was an open-ended research assignment. They could pick a topic 
it was really intended to be like, think of some advanced way you would use additive manufacturing. And I got some, what I thought were really great responses. Some of the ones are what you would expect, but good variations. A lot of people talked about uses in bio applications, like perhaps you know, prosthesis is certainly a good one. I think a lot of people are familiar with that. Uh, we had a, a speaker from Walter Reed come and gave a great talk on 3D printing in bio applications. I had uh, several that wrote on space applications, because again, if you're interested in aviation, well, that's, that is truly the next frontier. And I think there's great potential there. And there's a lot of people that are interested. Let's go a little bit science fiction for a second. If you could think about it, if you truly envision a manned mission to Mars, well, how are you going to make things on Mars once you get there? Are you going to ship everything there? Or wouldn't it really be great if once you got there, you could actually make things while you were there? I know a lot of people that seems like science fiction, but it's a reality. If you want to have that vision of doing it, you're going to need to figure that out. So I had students talk about that. And some of you did stuff like on the moon. That was a part that I really liked. I had several projects that gave really uh, unique and interesting ways to view additive manufacturing. We do a lot of things with other industries and I won't you know discuss everybody, but we work with some major defense contractors and they've said exactly what you just said. The numbers, they just don't play. They do not work. For if you want to ship things to Mars, even the moon, it just, the numbers don't support it. Uh, the ability to ship it. So you're going to need to have some, some sort of on-site manufacturing capability. And certainly item manufacturing seems you know like a possibility. Then, not to mention another one that my students discussed is, well, what about 3D printing in space? Can you actually 3D print in space you know, without gravity? So these are things that they're not simple questions, right? They require engineering solutions to complex problems. If anything, for education, it's such a handy way to get people engaged and to bring up resource constraint and just seems to be a very powerful motivator. So that's pretty exciting. For the next five, 10 years, the role of additive manufacturing will change beyond the classroom. Yeah, that's, that's another good question. I really think that you're we're going to start to see hybrid technologies emerge. And I know they're already out there, but I think the people who are able to develop hybrid solutions of both additive and subtractive or where additive is a complementary or whichever one is the is the focal one but i think the ability to do hybrid techniques is going to be very valuable for one one of the disadvantages of manufacturing is post-processing or you're not being suitable for the intended application so if you can integrate in either post-processing or even subtractive on a 3d printed part i think that's going to be worth a lot I also think that our idea, and I'm not saying we're the only ones that have this idea, but I really like the term multifunctional printing. I know that 4D printing is sometimes gets used. I'm not a big fan of that because it implies time, which that's not really what we're talking about. But just imagine the ability to create a part, again, a custom part because you're 3D printing it, but now the part itself has some unique capability. So in, in our case, the unique capability is it interacts with radiation. Uh, and that interaction with radiation produces a specific response. You can envision the same thing for RF. What about electrical impulses? So my one of my co-inventors has a great idea that we've just never been able to bring to fruition yet. And his is this idea of making a 3D printed claw. And what I mean by claw is something that is relatively malleable, but then if you apply current or whatever you do to it, you're able to manipulate it, right? And directly print that. So this ability to apply external stimuli and produce a, a macro scale response of a part, I think is something that we're going to start to see more of. I, I assume you've played around with muscle wire and things like this. 
Yeah, that again, this is why, you know, we have a robotics department too, and they're into this research as well. It could be potentially a huge step for robotics or medical as well too, right? If you're talking about haptic feedback and all these other kind of things. So uh, I think there are some huge steps that can be made in the ability to produce parts that have different functions. So then let's talk about that in, in a couple of different ways. First of all, how do you think the design tools will change to be able to allow users to imagine, create, and test ideas like the ones you're describing? I think you're going to see the continuation of different optimization techniques. And so this is one of the things that I try to implement in my ad manufacturing class, but I'll admit it's difficult. And it's this idea of design for ad manufacturing. Everyone's normal, or I should say everyone like me, who's been around for a while before 3D printing came along, thinks one way when they're doing their CAD designs, right? They're thinking that we're going to injection mold this, or we're going to cast it, or we're going to machine it, or whatever. At some point, people are going to drop that paradigm, and they're going to think from the ground up, like when you are making your part electronically, when you are designing it, you're designing it with the intention that it's going to be atomy manufactured. I think that that is a ground that companies need to pursue and, and try to break that paradigm. I think it's difficult. And I know there's lots of people, design for manufacturing is not an unusual term right now, but the actual ability to implement it is is challenging. From your perspective, do you, do you think we're just at the pioneering days of that? Are you seeing progress in these tools really serving those needs? I think so. I mean, certainly uh, topology optimization is, I think, a term that many people are familiar with. That, that plays right with adding manufacturing in many ways. So, I mean, there are certainly people that are working on it. I think we are, I think we are still, we'll say in the pioneering days or the early days, but we're not like, we're not blind to it. I mean, we do know what we're trying to do. We just need to continue to work on it. And like I said, you really must just break that paradigm that, uh, that thinking that this material is only going to be manufactured via this way. There are just certain things that if you incorporate them into your design process, you'll end up with a better part at the end. So we've talked about uh, software and to degree analysis software. Let's talk about the materials themselves. You all are experimenting with, you know, a lot of the advanced materials that are even available right now. Uh, just as a, a place to, to start from, how are you tracking finding a material that really meets you know, a part requirement versus modifying a design to, to address that need? How are you finding that balance? Sure. Well, the way I'll answer that question is I'll back us all the way to the beginning. The motto for my lab is design, build, perform. And now in this discussion, we're actually on that third one. We all understand design, right? And we just talked about it in design for additive manufacturing. And quite honestly, I think many places are very good at that. We're now getting much, much better at the build, right? And actually understanding it. So these are three different core areas that I try to make sure students understand. So now this last one you're in is in the perform. Well, now that you've made this part, how is it actually going to perform? Now, fortunately, this is another area that we're pretty good at. I mean, we understand material characterization. So we have done the full onslaught of testing from Sharpie V-notch testing to hardness testing, tensile testing, compression testing environmental conditions, et cetera. So we do really look at these parts and how they actually perform. We had one project of now two years ago where all I did was 3D print different tensile specimens or different other specimens, but it ended up being like 30 or 40 different tensile designs because it's based on all the materials. So it's a daunting task. And the 
parameters, not just the material. The printing parameters actually make a lot of difference. So you really do need that aspect of it too. Uh, you need to understand the intended application and then the material properties of your part and see if, if they will work. My belief though is that most people think that adding manufactured parts won't be compatible, but oftentimes they probably are, or at least they can be. Metal is a challenging uh, story. So if you're making parts out of metal, yes, making metal parts is very challenging. There's, there's lots of issues. But if, if polymers are a material that works for your application, you're probably going to be successful with 3D printing polymers, right? Because there's a wide variety uh, that are available that uh, have really good properties. Most people always think about the limitations of a 3D printed part. There are lots of advantages, well beyond just the ability to manufacture unusual shapes. Everybody understands composites, right? And composites, the way you lay down fibers in composites, incredibly influence the, the performance of that part. The same can be applied for an added manufactured part. Uh, we've even had discussions. We haven't found a way to really implement it, but what, what if you could actually take advantage of that, right? And either... I think everyone understands the idea of, of making it stronger in one direction based on fibers, et cetera. But what if even you could insert weaknesses or control flaws in such a way that a part behaved in a desirable, but perhaps not optimum way in a different direction? So you just have to look at it that way. You have to treat it just as not a homogeneous part, right? That it's a part that it depends upon either how it's loaded or how it's stressed to determines how it behaves. Yeah, there's both the developments in what polymers and what composite materials are available now. And there's also the whole architecting materials uh, approach where you're getting a lot of those properties with the same material. We, we talked about software, then we talked about the material itself and, and you picked up uh, the machine side. But wh what, are you, what are your thoughts about, speaking of processing parameters and uh, machine operation, uh, where, do you, where are you hoping machines will end up going to help aid this? This is one of the things that we struggle with a lot. It's, and I can imagine that vendors, perhaps even more than us, like how much control do you give the user? Because it's very easy to overwhelm the user and give them a thousand variables for them to choose from in any process, whether it's FFF or VAT polymerization or powder bed or whatever. But at the same time, experienced users do need customization. So I, I think this is a very yin and yang that designers, manufacturers, and then builders need to iterate on and, and discuss how much availability of parameters do users need. I personally, I don't really like complete turnkey solutions. As I tell my students, I absolutely don't ever want them just to come up to take their CAD design, put it in some software package and hit print because that does not do, is not likely to achieve the, the result that you want. I want them to understand the parameters, as many of them as they can, and it can reasonably control to uh, produce a good part. On the flip side, if you have to control every single laser parameter or scan rate or scan function, that may be too much as well too. So there needs to be a balance. And I think industry is going to have to try to determine what that balance is. Have you played with the intent-based profiles at all? Which which one of those games? Uh, in Kira, so there there's a new set of quick print settings that if you back out of the customized settings that are actually designed to do this. So basically we we've been sharing some of our internal data and that we when we created the, the Ultimaker profiles for these materials, 
you know, it's a compromise and it, it leans in certain ways, definitely towards a pretty part and not necessarily a fast part. Uh, so we've added an engineering base, which is just spot on accurate, actually changes a lot of stuff. It's not as concerned about a really pretty outer surface, but you take your calipers and it should be spot on. It, cha- it changes the order of, of some of the uh, pathing. So we're starting to do that kind of thing. And it's, it's not that you're uh, locked in. It's that you can click on these things based on your goals for that part and, and already have a lot of stuff in that direction. I'm really hoping that will help people start to do this uh, because nobody really has the time to really exhaustively explore the parameters for any part. Because you can't really have a, a profile that works for every part. It's always geometry specific. But now users can class the features in their part and say, well, I have these kinds of things and that's going to push me towards this. And so I can start here and then maybe spend a couple hours testing, not you know, a couple of weeks. I've started to work with those in Cure. We've also done it in some other programs as well, too. And I think this is a, a, a great educational avenue, right? This is a great thing for us to try to dive into and see if we can work on. I also think it completely underscores this idea that you have to have a basic understanding of the process, right? You cannot just go in blindly and think that you're going to get good results. You need to understand what the different settings are and how it affects the print and and how your material is actually going to behave. Fortunately, this is why I really do like being on the educational side because we can afford to have some failures. We have lots of printer failures in my lab. I, I obviously don't ever want this prints to come out poorly, but we use them as as great examples of what not to do. And, and my students end up making a lot of simple mistakes a lot of the time, but a lot of times those simple mistakes, you can really drive home a good a good lesson. I mean, that's that's how people learn software. And so it's sort of exciting. People are doing that with engineering design now. What are your thoughts on the concept of digital distribution and local manufacturing? Yeah, I think this is an area that everyone is concerned about. Not everybody is catching on maybe as, as fast as as, the, as I think they should, because I think a lot of big corporations are really concerned about it. So let me use an example to highlight the point. So one of the things that we did during the COVID pandemic, since uh, we weren't printing jobs, we completely reset up the IT infrastructure in my lab. All of my 3D printing capability is completely standalone. And it's all very modern. I mean, I have high speed, high network capability. So I need or I desire, I should say, printers that don't require an internet access. I mean, do, do I have the ability to bring things from it? Sure, but I need to have it all contained. And part of my reasoning behind that more than anything is my roles in the Navy. The, the, the Navy is a classic example. I mean, a ship or a submarine cannot depend on having an active internet connection all the time. And if you if you want to have 3D printing capability, well, you have to have the capability without those designs. So that's one aspect. I think you need to have the ability to isolate yourself so that you can control your own security, et cetera. There is the flip side of this, and you mentioned it as well too. I think there's lots of movement in that pretty soon companies are going to be virtual only for design. Like the, I think you're going to see major industries only produce designs and then they're going to have ways to 
control the distribution of that IP to manufacturing sites or perhaps even to direct end users to print their designs. And this is a cybersecurity problem like no other. And I had IT majors in my class as well, too, and I actually welcome those. And I really like this idea of cybersecurity. It's one of our seven core areas right now because I think there are major issues to address on cybersecurity, both from the the intellectual property of the design aspect, but then also the integrity of the printing network itself. So if we could just take a couple of elements out of that. So with distributed manufacturing, even if you take the internet connectivity, the public internet off, the idea of being able to validate parameters and for part production and then send instructions that are ready to go uh, to distant nodes of a network how does that how does that match uh, your teaching and your field the system that we have set up does that i mean we're all self-contained so uh, we we can accomplish everything that we need to accomplish within our network architecture but it's only because we designed it that way so it's not just blindly it didn't just fall together this way. So I think it's important for anyone who you know, wants to operate more than one printer, quite honestly, to have a well thought out developed plan on how you're going to utilize them. I'll give you an example. The COVID pandemic gave us another opportunity to to stress this. So when COVID happened, we uh, completely retooled my lab right away to support the production of PPE. That's not a trivial process, right? So, uh, and it really changes how you do things because now rather than trying to have your lab ready to print any part that a student might desire, we know the five parts that we want to print. You know, and that's about what it was. We had a list of about five things that we were doing. So we completely restructured our architecture and we wanted to have the ability to do it kind of rapidly and, and, and maybe with people who didn't know everything about it. So you just have to figure out what your strategy is and then a way to implement that strategy. And ours did change. It shifted from a very open-ended design structure where any student could put in any design to where we made a, um, a stovepipe. And I hate stovepipes in my lab, but we made a very stovepiped arrangement where this printer was printing this, this printer was printing this. Uh, but yet it was very repeatable and it ran not quite 24-7, but pretty close to 24-7. Did you have other people helping you uh, with the machines or were you running around? It's a challenging question. The answer is I had one other person. Uh, so he and I were doing it together. There were visions that, that maybe we would have ability because we were really trying to make it where almost anyone and we made videos even for how to do it. But the pandemic just got, got the better of us and it was really just he and I managing all of it. And it's it's like we said in the beginning, uh, the COVID pandemic had a huge impact on everybody, but it is important for us to try to learn, you know, things from it. And that's one of the reasons why we set the lab up the way that we did. Obviously, we wanted to support people in need, but it was also interesting to be able to flex your lab in a different way than what it was really intended. Uh, and I think you've seen that same kind of thing in other different areas. Things weren't, you know, meant to operate 24-7 uh, and stuff like that. So it was a good exercise. It's been a busy couple of months. H have you all sort of dialed that down at this point? Well, uh, yeah, we have for a lot of different reasons. It's, it's all been now orchestrated under the DOD and FEMA. So that quite honestly has usually slowed things down. So yeah, we've, we've, we've ramped down. What are your thoughts about uh, the impact of additive manufacturing on the supply chain in the near future and farther future? I think currently 
we're not there yet. I mean, I don't think currently item manufacturing is having a major impact on the supply chain. I think everyone is heading that direction and I do see us getting there, but I don't think we're there yet. So what I think needs to be done is to continue what we're currently doing. And without discussing exact specifics, most people are, are dividing their needs into, we'll just say different bins. Like if you have a, an array of parts that you must produce or an array of materials, well, what part needs what level of essentiality to it and you might find that some of your parts really they don't require much right they just require to fit and have the right form and that's about it and that's simple things like knobs or very simple things that that not only are they simple to make but they are also likely some of your most common failures so that's the easiest inroad right away to for for additive manufacturing to make an immediate impact is on these simple things that can be identified the marine corps has tons of applications the navy has also plenty and then maybe there is a next level up. So this is a part, okay, it needs to form and it fit, and it has some requirements or it has some acceptable failure rate. And people, engineers will come up with failure criteria, like it can fail 50% of the time or, or it can last a week or whatever. So maybe that's an acceptable case. And then there might be some that you say, there's just no, because there has to be some quality assurance process on that, that ag manufacturing is is not going to meet, at least not time, time in the near future. So that sounds daunting, but if you tackle it that way, if you approach your supply chain and you try to create bins or however you want to classify on things that can be done 3D printing or not, I think what you're going to find out is many things that are of value to could actually be 3D printed, just not everything. Uh, so I just want to take a quick moment to, to thank you again for sitting down and having this excellent conversation, really pointing out what's happening and how fast it's moving where you are. Thank you for joining. We hope that you have enjoyed our sixth episode for the Talking Additive podcast, featuring Captain Brad Baker from the United States Naval Academy. To learn more about the Makerspace USNA, visit their homepage at www.makerspaceusna.com. In two weeks, we will return with episode seven, which will feature Nicholas Utenbach from IGIS. We explore these topics and more on Talking Additive. Enjoy our show, subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode, and we'd appreciate it if you could post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. Join the conversation about additive manufacturing by subscribing today at TalkingAdditive.com. Thanks again to Captain Brad Baker and the Makerspace USNA team for joining us for this episode. Thanks also to series producer Hana Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos, and a thank you to Brian Scarry and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbirds Custom Music and Sound for the music and episode sound mix. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you again to our listeners. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.